Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. everybody. It's so wonderful to be with you today to share this moment that we have together as a church community. I'd like to begin by reading something that maybe some of the English majors in the room have heard before. Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk A shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, for everything in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. As we open the word of God this morning, I wanna encourage us to remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which tells us that the word of God is living and active. So while we open an ancient text that speaks of an ancient place and ancient people, It is for today. God speaks to us here in downtown San Diego through an ancient text of an ancient place with ancient people, and it is perfect and it is timely for us today. So may we not only be hearers of the word this morning, but also doers of the word. May we respond not just with our ears, but with our whole lives as we submit ourselves before the word of God. So there are three movements to what I want to share with you today. I've got two stories that I'm going to share from the scriptures, and then we're going to look at a response or an invitation that God, I believe God would hold before us today. First thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of the Tower of Babel, the account of those who built a tower to make a name for themselves and were ultimately scattered in chaos. Secondly, we're going to look at the story or the call of Abraham, one man called out from Babylon who received a name, inherited a blessing, built an altar. And then finally, we're going to consider that invitation from Jesus into the cruciform life. 
So if you've got your Bible, or if you have your Bible app, let's open to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, and we'll read together. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused their language, the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. This is the account of the story, the Tower of Babylon. And it is a story of the world gone awry. This account is an indictment on all of humanity. All the people across the earth who willingly chose to rebel against the Lord. Theirs was a shared desire, a collective refrain that we read. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. And so the people of the earth united themselves to strengthen themselves, lest they be scattered throughout the earth. That's what we read, right? Which interestingly is in direct opposition to the cultural mandate that God gave humanity in the garden, which was be fruitful and fill the earth. Similarly, it is in direct opposition to Jesus' great commission to Go, therefore, and make disciples. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. Historically, it's agreed that Babylonians took great pride in their buildings. In fact, they boasted that their city was not only impenetrable, but also heavenly. They quite literally named their city the gate of God. Their reputation preceded them, and their skill and their acumen was not only known, but it was admired and celebrated. But what is interesting is that their appetite for the building project was not the problem. This was not the grave sin that caused the Lord to come down and interfere with the goings-on of humanity. No, the sin at hand the sin at work in this account is the purpose for which the building project was undertaken. Let us make a name for ourselves. Like Ozymandias, the proclaimed, self-proclaimed king of kings who erected a colossal monument in his own honor, the people of Babylon sought to establish a memorial or a testimony to themselves at the exclusion of the one true king of kings, 
who is God himself. It's very interesting to notice that in their conversation, God is not mentioned or acknowledged even once. And yet they were able to acknowledge themselves five times in three short sentences. Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered. This, in essence, is the first expression of secular humanism, which is the promotion of human values and achievement to the exclusion of theological ones. It's the promotion of human values outside of the kingdom of God. And just like the secular humanism that we experience today, any endeavor done apart from God is ultimately one done in futility. Though their tower stretched to the sky, do you notice that God still had to come down toward them? Though they sought to make a name for themselves, the name of the Lord ultimately was and always will be the one singular name that is above every other name. As is consistent with the loving character of God, his judgment upon the people of Babylon, which we read about, is not only a punishment for the rebellion and for their sin, but it's also an act of incredible grace. You see, God's concern for the people of Babylon was not one of jealousy. It was not a concern birth of insecurity at some kind of creative rival that had emerged. Rather, his concern for the people of Babylon was their collective denial of who he was. His concern for the people of Babylon was one that was birthed in love. His concern was the rejection of the one who is eternal, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is all-knowing, and the one who is almighty. Because a life that is lived apart from the testimony of who God is, a life lived outside of the realm of acknowledging who the Lord is, is one that results in chaos and confusion. We simply need to look at our own lives or read one or two headlines to realize that secular humanism and a life lived apart from God, apart from the one who holds all things together, is futile and results in chaos. What's interesting is that ultimately the very thing that they feared, the very thing that they were working against, being scattered, is the result of their rebellion. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. And what do we read at the end of the account? The Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Now you might be thinking, well, Caitlin, that's a really nice Mesopotamian story, but what does this actually have to do with me and my life today? Well, according to the New Testament and according to just Uh, the trajectory of history at large, I would say that this account has absolutely everything to do with my life and to do with your life today. And it would be wise for us to, to listen and to discern the voice of God out of scripture toward us today. You see, you and I, we build towers. 
We seek to make a name for ourselves and the result is always chaos and confusion. And like the Babylonians, we live in a world that has gone awry. Romans chapter one, verse 25 says this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We make bricks and we worship them. We exchange the creator for things that are created. And if we're honest, our bricks are scattered everywhere. And our bricks might look like this, that we are often more interested in our personal aesthetic than in the God who formed us in our innermost being. We are often more interested in carving out a perfect lifestyle than we are in the God who is the author of life. We are often more concerned with what we eat and where we live than the God who clothes the fields and determines the boundaries in which we will live. Our bricks are personal, they are public, they are professional, and they are political, and they are scattered everywhere. Since Adam and Eve and the garden, we have all been involved in a glory exchange. It is the same glory exchange that took place at the Tower of Babel. It is the same glory exchange that took place when the Israelites built a golden calf. And it is this very same glory exchange that causes you and me to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And to worship and to serve what is created rather than the creator of all things. The sin of Babylon is rampant around us. And the sin of Babylon is rampant in my own heart. Through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we need to be bold enough to recognize Babylon in our hearts and Babylon around us. And we need to be bold enough to be men and women that stand up to Babylon Men and women that stand up to systems and structures of human secularism and say, no, we are tired of the glory exchange that has taken place. We have been there. It is chaos. It is confusion. It is death. And I will not continue to be a part of it because I know the one who is the author of life. I know the one who has come and has breathed order out of chaos. If you ask me, I think that there are men and women with this kind of courage spread across universities in this nation. Men and women in universities like Asbury and Point Loma and Wheaton. Men and women with a conviction who fill churches like ours. Men and women who recognize the glory exchange that has taken place, who repent and turn and say it ends with us. It ends with us. Men and women who are young and old who declare with confidence and courage and conviction that it is the creator who is to be praised forever. You know, friends, Romans chapter three, verse nine says this. What then? Are any of us better off? Are any of us better off than the Babylonians? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all 
and a sin. For as it was written, there is no one righteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We are corrupted by sin. Beginning in the garden, when we push the bounds of of, of what God deemed as good and true and holy and righteous, we became corrupted. Babylon lives in our heart. We rebel against the one true God. We rebel against what is good. And in light of our sin, in light of our rebellion, in light of our anger towards God, because God is not angry with us, in light of our anger toward God, we need the grace, the mercy, and the peace of God to be ministered to us. And you know that Paul teaches us in Ephesians that in Christ Jesus, this is actually where we are seated. We are seated in God's grace. We are seated in God's mercy. We are seated in the peace of God. Christ has come to give us peace with God and to reconcile us to him forever. This is the good news of the gospel. We are seated in the grace, the mercy, and the peace of God. You know, bricks were made in Egypt by Hebrew slaves. And ultimately, people were held captive by the sin of their rebellion. They made bricks to make a tower, and then they were kept in slavery and captivity making bricks. They were held captive in the sin of their rebellion. Isn't that true of our own sin, our own rebellion? That apart from Jesus, we are slaves to our sin. In fact, the the Bible teaches us that we are dead in our sin. But the good news of Jesus Christ is this, that no matter the glory exchange that has taken place, no matter the lies that we have believed, no matter the bricks that we have built, no matter the towers that we have worshipped, in Christ we are not slaves to our sin, we are free. We are free. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, for freedom Christ has set us free. We are not slaves to the bricks that we build and worship. We, friends, like church, are free in Jesus Christ. While God pours out his judgment upon sin, because he is good, righteous, and holy, and sin must be judged for what it is, evil, we hide ourselves in the provision of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are free. We are a free people brought out of slavery, brought out of captivity, brought out of rebellion into a spacious place, seated in grace, seated in mercy, seated in the peace that has been won for us by Jesus Christ. At the end of my message, a little bit later, we're going to have communion. And when we do, what it really is is an invitation for us to recognize the towers that we have built, the bricks that we carry around in our hand, and to repent. It's an opportunity to turn from those things and to confess them before the Lord and say, God, I am sorry. I see these bricks and I lay them down. I lay them down before a holy and a just God and I declare that there is no one righteous, not even one, except Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God who has set me free from slavery, has set me free from sin and has raised me to life from death 
by giving his body and his blood as a sacrifice for my redemption. So that's the invitation that will come when we have communion later. Friends, we build towers, we carry bricks around and we worship them. There has been a glory exchange that has taken place and the invitation before us is to say, no, that glory exchange stops with me and I will only praise the one who will be praised forever and ever and ever. We read in the scriptures that right now there's a whole chorus of the heavenlies that has gone on and will always go on declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we get to add our voice to that chorus, which will never end. You see, friends, our God, the God that we serve, the God that brings us together in this room will not be like Ozymandias because he is actually the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the name who is above every other name. Around him is not desolation. Around him is life and freedom and space and joy forevermore. I want to look at the story of Abraham. One man called out from scattered Babylon. Okay, so Babylon has been scattered by the Lord. And Abraham is called out. One man. He receives a name. He doesn't make a name for himself, but he receives a name from the the mouth of the Lord. He doesn't show up an inheritance for himself, but he receives an inheritance from the Lord. And instead of building a tower, he built an altar. And just as we enter this story, I want to invite you, if you're comfortable, to hold your hand before you clenched in a fist. And you can do it, it's okay. Hold your hand clenched. Because when we build towers and we show up a name for ourselves and build an identity for ourselves, this is what we do. And God invites us just to receive. So just open your hand. Because you receive a name. You get given an inheritance. This is what it means to be children of God. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 9. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives. Your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and I on the east, 
he built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. I am convinced that God is using the story of Abraham to speak to the church today. And I think that's why I'm feeling really tender. Abraham, the great patriarch, the father of our faith, was a man changed. At 75 years old, he was a man changed. Once a pagan, he was called by God. As we move through the latter years of his life, what we see is that he was given a name, he receives a covenantal blessing, and then he spends the remainder of his life establishing altars of worship where he would call upon not his own name or his family name or the inheritance that his family had won for him, but he called upon the name of the Lord. What a stark contradiction or juxtaposition to the story of the Tower of Babel where they built names for themselves and essentially called upon their own strength and their own ability and their own inheritance. We see a man who leaves everything. He forsakes it all and calls upon another's name. So what strikes me about Abraham is not only was he a man who was changed, but he was prepared to sacrifice everything he knew, everything he had for faith in God. And instead of building a tower or a testimony or a monument to his own name, what we read about Abraham is that he planted trees and he established altars of intimacy with the Lord. And trees in the scripture are beautiful symbols for us of the Garden of Eden. They're beautiful pictures and promises of what God's original intent was for humanity. Seeds are latent with possibility but spring forth at the work of God, not at the hand of man. So Abraham planted seeds latent with possibility, filled with the promise of the kingdom and established altars of worship, a microcosm of Eden, wherever he went. This is essentially the, the, the um, cultural mandate that God gave in the Garden of Eden. It's a commission that Jesus gave. He established a microcosm of the kingdom wherever he went. So called, at 75 years old, God chose Abraham and Sarah to be a new kind of Adam and a new kind of Eve. And I want to say, if you're older and you have disqualified yourself from being involved in the story of God, I want to remind you of Abraham, who was 75 years old when he was called. Do not disqualify yourself. The Lord calls you by name. Their family became the chosen people of God called out from Babylon, called out from the epicenter of human secularism. They were sent and scattered to be a blessing, to bless the world. He was told to leave his nation, told to leave his people, told to leave his father's house. That's a huge sacrifice. Abraham would have had to forsake Babylon, but to forsake Babylon in his own heart as well. 
I've made a little move from South Africa to San Diego. And friends, let me tell you, Babylon has risen up in my heart. All the places where I put my security, all of the plate, like trust structures that I have lived in, that I have swum in, that I have been naive to, all of those things have surfaced in my heart. And I have had to say, no, no, I will forsake it all because there is one name. There is one name I call upon. I don't call upon the name of my nation. I don't call upon the name of my family. I don't call upon the name of my inheritance that my parents fought and won for me. I call upon the name of Jesus because his is the name that is eternal. His is the name that will last forever. Abraham was commanded to exchange his name, his reputation, his family inheritance, and his security for a place that God would show him. Instead, Abraham was promised an inheritance he knew nothing about. He was asked to leave, and he was promised an inheritance he knew nothing about, and yet it cost him absolutely everything he had ever known. And what do we read? What was Abraham's response? So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him. Friends, I want to be like Abraham. When I'm called to sacrifice everything I've ever known, even without knowing the fullness of what is to come, I want to go. And yes, Abraham went imperfectly. He went imperfectly, but he went nonetheless. And what we discover as we read about Abraham's life is that his story is like every story of redemption. It is the unconditional promise of God, his unshakable hold upon those whom he calls to forsake Babylon and die to themselves to receive the life of Jesus Christ, even in the face of a faith that falters. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 37 says this, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can anyone gain in exchange for his life? Essentially, when God called Abraham out from Babylon, he did so in order that Abraham might join God in reversing the effects of the fall and to give his life as a blessing for many, just as Christ himself has given his life to us that we might receive his life and so become a blessing to many. This is the call of God upon our lives, friends, to forsake Babylon, to reverse the effects of the fall and to live the life of Christ, to be blessed to be a blessing. So when Babylon is loud, may we remember that Jesus Christ is the only one who will not perish, and apart from him, nothing beside shall remain. When we are tempted to build towers to our own name, may we remember that we receive our name from the one whose name is above every other name. And when we are tempted to worship that which has been created, like Abraham, may we, instead of building a tower, build, plant a tree and build an altar and call upon the name of the Lord. When our faith is sure and when our faith falters, may we remember that exchange for the name and the reputation that we shore up for ourselves. We have been given the name and the reputation of Jesus Christ before our Father in glory. And that in exchange for our lives, we are given the life of Jesus Christ. And this is the invitation to the cruciform life. This is what sits at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. It's a death to ourself that we can be raised in the life of Christ. 
And I really believe that this is the invitation that God is holding before his church in this hour. Will you die that you might live? Will you stop building towers and plant trees and establish altars of worship and call upon my name? Because I am the only one that will be and is forever and ever and ever. And I'm doing this and I'm asking this of you because I love you. We are living in a very unique season. Even during worship this morning, I don't know if anyone else maybe felt a prompting from the spirit in their heart or seen something new in their heart, but it was as though we were worshiping and we could, I could hear the rustle of the robes of Christ as he entered the temple. I could hear the movement of his robe this morning. With its birth in Asbury and a foretaste of revival that is spreading across the globe, we are witnessing a great move of repentance and humility as God draws near to his people. You know, I know that so many people have spoken about this and with wisdom and discernment and maturity, there's, there's been a caution around it. I understand that. I understand the wisdom of leaders around the world to, hey, what is God doing? To step back and to see what is God doing? Do you know, when I was 14 years old, in the early years of my salvation, God drew close to a few of, a few of my friends. In a little town in Durban, I, there was this little group of people called Sunsurf. There was like this little club. I liked books and I rode horses, but there I was every Sunday or whatever, every Wednesday going to Sunsurf. And God drew close to us in a beautiful and a unique way. So much so that those few months, those few weeks of intimacy with God has shaped my life forever. We would gather in the church hall. We would ask our youth leader if she would unlock the door so that we could go and worship him. So we could go and seek him. And I received words from the Lord, pictures from the Lord that have seen me through into my adult years because I had an experience of intimacy with Jesus like I'd never had before. And so when we, in, when we are faced with a season like this, while wisdom and discernment is important, I'm also like, yes, yes, I believe that God is at work. I believe that he is moving. I have faith that God is doing what he promised he would do. I believe it. I believe that when there is a move of God, it's not just for select people. It's for everyone, young and old, people from different nations, different backgrounds, different history, that Jesus Christ has come for all. Confronting the futility of modern secularism and the depravity of our sin, the grace, mercy, and peace of God is being poured out across the world like a drink offering upon a sacrifice of obedience, a sacrifice of faith. And his name is being rightly exalted, and we are responded and invited to respond in kind. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't earned, it was credited. Credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, verse 18 to 20, we read that Abraham believed, hoping against hope. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promises, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. How did he do this? Remember Genesis 12, verse 9? He built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. Now listen to how Romans chapter 4 continues in verse 23 to 24. Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but for all of us. Also for 
us. It will be credited to us who believe in him. Light Church, I want to ask you today, will we believe Romans chapter 5, verse 15, which says that through the righteousness of one man, Jesus Christ, there is a life for many. Will this be credited to us as righteousness? Will we, like Abraham, not waver in unbelief, but be strengthened in faith through the Holy Spirit and give glory to God? Will we build an altar unto the Lord and call upon him in this hour? You see, it was by faith that Abraham went as the Lord told him. And it is the author of Hebrews that tells us in chapter 11 that by faith, Abraham stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city, which was totally unlike Babylon, because it had its foundation in, in whose architect and builder is God. Abraham spent his life wandering the desert, living in a tent because he knew what the Lord had promised and he knew what the Lord would do. And he looked forward not to the city of Babylon, but to the kingdom of God, the city of God, whose builder and architect is the Lord himself. So what is more, do you know that this chapter says of the great cloud of witnesses to our faith? It says so about men and women like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Simon, David, and Samuel. It says about them in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38, that the world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them. Friends, we have a system that the world says that is what is worthy. We have systems and structures that we believe we're involved in this whole glory exchange that says, this is what a worthy life looks like. This is what a worthy life looks like. But of these men and women, the scriptures say the world was not worthy of them. And do you know how they live? How they lived? They didn't live in towers. They didn't live in the great city of Babylon. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And these are the men and women that God Almighty has declared the world was not worthy of them. Not in the high towers of architectural glory, in tents and in deserts and in caves. We continue to read that all these were approved by their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had promised something better for us. And do you know what that is or who that is? The seed of Eve, Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected, and glorified Savior. So friends, like Abraham, we may only greet the fullness of God's redemptive promises to us from a distance. We may only see it from a distance. Yet it is my prayer that like Abraham, we would be those who die in faith, approved by God, wandering the desert. Abraham went without knowing. And through costly obedience, he had a revelation of who God was. Charles Finney, the Presbyterian minister who led the Second Great Awakening, wrote that a revival is nothing else than the beginning of obedience to God. Will we go without knowing and find God, have a revelation of who he is in costly obedience? You know, in Genesis chapter 18, God visits Abraham. He's sitting under the oaks of Mamre, a high place which is reminiscent of Eden, and during the heat of the day, Abraham looks up and he sees that the Lord is near. 
And Abraham cries out in response. He says, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, please do not pass me by. 2023 is the heat of the day. I want to say, let's look up. The Lord is near. Will we call out to him, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, do not pass me by. Light church, will we say it together? Lord, if we have found favor in your eyes, do not pass us by. Will we stretch out our hands to touch the hem of his robe? Not for any other reason than we actually want to just be caught up in his love. We want to know and experience the depth of his grace, his mercy, and his peace. Because he is altogether beautiful. Because we want to anoint him with our love. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12 says, Lay hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I want to say to us this morning, I want to say to myself, lay hold of Christ as he lays hold of you. Lay hold of Christ as he lays hold of you. You know, like church, I have watched from afar and now I get to witness up close. You reach out lay hold of Christ. I have watched and witnessed as you have reached out to touch the hem of his robe. Before moving to San Diego, I think I saw on Isaac's Instagram account a video of people in our church, Grace, Cameron, Cole, and hundreds of students gathering to worship in a car park. Not once off, but again and again and again and again because they have chosen with their lives to call out and say, Lord, do not pass us by. I have witnessed these young people lay hold of Christ as he has laid hold of them. I have seen people like Brooke and Eric and Julie and Michaela do for Christ what they can do for the least of these. My little boy profoundly aware that they have been loved first and so they are set free to love without reserve. That is laying hold of Christ, friends. Last Sunday, some of you I know were at the 5 p.m. service in Encinitas and from what Brian tells me, you effectively booed Stevie off the stage because you were not done laying hold of Christ. He said every time Stevie came up, it was like just the congregation grew louder and louder and louder in worship because they were not yet done laying hold of Christ. How beautiful is that? God, Lord, if you have found favor with me, do not pass us by. With humility, I want to ask friends, could we do that again? Could we lay hold of Christ like you have done so many times before? I'm going to ask us to do it again, to build and establish an altar of worship because he is worthy. As a declaration against Babylon that we will not build towers, we will build altars. We will not make a name for ourselves. We will call upon the name of the Lord. I'm going to ask, would we do that today? Can we lift up our voices in response to the Lord and lay hold of Christ? Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, do not pass me by. You know, during our preaching meeting, we discussed the spiritual practice that we would highlight in response to this passage. And we agreed that we would call our community to Sabbath, which is a beautiful gift from God. 
to rest and to rejoice in the Lord, to recognize that the tower is futile and the trees of Mamre where the altar is built far more glorious than we can imagine. I believe that this is good. I believe it is true. I believe it is beautiful. I believe it is necessary. And so I want to say to you, rest and rejoice in the Lord. Don't build towers. Lay down those bricks and just open your hand to receive the name and to receive an inheritance. But as I was preparing this message, I really felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit that we would go somewhere else today. Because I believe that for us downtown, our response to the Word of God is a call to faith. Not faith that is easy. In fact, a faith that is very costly. A faith that would cost us our lives. A faith that is like Abraham's. A faith that goes without knowing all the answers, but a faith that says, Lord, you are worthy and your name is rightly praised forever. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, hoping against hope, and he did not waver in unbelief. And I'm sure it sounded much like that cry in the gospel, God, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I believe, help my unbelief. Abraham Abraham believed and he was strengthened in faith and gave glory to God. He built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord, the one who is to be praised forever. And friends today, I don't want to invite you and I want to invite myself to respond by in this place, in this space, to build an altar to the name of the Lord as we worship together, to call on him. And we're going to do that first by responding in communion repenting of the towers that we build, the bricks that we hold, the name that we make for ourselves. And then secondly, we're going to say, but there is one name that I call on and it's the name of Jesus Christ. And I tuck myself and I hide myself in the glory of who he is. And I am seated in heavenly places. I receive my name. I receive an inheritance. And by faith, I live. By faith, I say, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, do not pass me by. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And Brian's going to lead us in communion. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.